Welcome to the Take Care podcast. I'm Maya Mari, and through this podcast, I have conversations with artists on wellness and how they experience it within their lives. This podcast is part of the Take Care project by the Visual Arts Network of South Africa. Take Care considers mental health to be a key issue for the professional health of the visual arts and of visual arts practitioners and designs interventions to support artists. You can find out more at vansatake.care. In this episode, Scott Eric Williams speaks about navigating the precarity and insecurity of the COVID pandemic in his life as an artist and his experiences with depression. Scott describes an approach to wellness grounded in being aware of his state of mind and being, creating the space to meet his experience, and then drawing on tools that he has cultivated over years to allow for shifts. Lastly, he shares how he cultivates wellness in his work as an artist and the ways in which he works with young people through art and wellness. Thank you, Scott, for, for agreeing to do this conversation and for sitting down with me this morning. Um, we really appreciate having you in this project. I'd love to hear about what wellness means for you and what it looks for you within your everyday life. Uh, wellness means an equilibrium between um, my mental health, my physical health, and my spiritual health. And it also means being able to carve out the time in my busy schedule to, to fit in the practices that brings about those states of wellness. That equilibrium doesn't necessarily refer to some utopian or fairy tale state. You know, that, that's just impossible in, in this day and age. But it, it means a, a sense of contentment with whichever challenges I need to face and accepting them. And what that looks like is that, that I'm able to interact with people effectively and kindly, be, being satisfied with my own pace of doing things and, um, and with my own ways of being not overly critical of myself and also the, the quality of how I go, go about doing what needs to be done in the day, whatever that may be, whether it's a, a work task, whether it's a family task, whether it's a spiritual task. That's more or less the equilibrium I'm referring to. Can you tell us a bit about the, the practices that, that are part of your daily life that help you to cultivate that equilibrium? I'm, I'm going to confess that I'm not always very good at maintaining these practices, <laughs> straight off the bat. Um, but what I try to do is, this, this one's been um, a ritual for me, is I start off the morning with 10 to 15 minutes of stretching, allow the body to settle into this idea of moving because I've now shocked it out of sleep. Um, very similar to yoga practices, um, but also I'm, I'm a 40-year-old man, so I also now <laughs> need to treat certain parts of my body with respect. 
Um, I started the day with after my stitches with a mug of boiled water um, just to get the metabolism going. And then I would journal a little bit for maybe like five minutes just to, to get the first uh, thoughts out as a way of just vomiting them out onto the paper, exercising them. I also, I also read a bit of scripture in the morning, not too long, so maybe five minutes, and then I meditate on that for 10 to 15 minutes as well. And then I get into the, um, the work for the day. So I'd work, and then obviously I, when, when my body tells me I'm hungry, then I'd have uh, lunch, um, get back into work. Uh, I, I'd go as, as long as the momentum holds. Um, so if for me that means that the momentum only holds for two hours or so, I don't work for two hours, and then take another break and then continue more stretching throughout the day as well, because um, I find that during lockdown, most of my work has become not so much physical work, but mental work, sitting down, you know, the writing, the editing, um, putting together booklets work that's, you know, done sitting down so the body does its stuff. Later in the day, I, I cook a meal again, eat again, a little bit more meditation, some some gaming, I play games a little bit to be stressed, but to be some fun. And then, yeah, I, I go to bed. That's, that's more or less what the routine looks like. So there are these little practices embedded into the day, but also depending on the the workload of the day or, or what's expected of me, I might build in some other processes as well um, that help me to come unstuck if, if I find myself bogged down or um, I might watch you know, certain material or read certain material as well or do something a bit more practical um, to break myself out of those little spaces of funk. Also taking walks and, and it, doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be this meander in a felt or something, but just the act of interrupting the funk and taking a walk to the shop to buy tea or, or um, fruit or something is an important interruption to that state of mind because uh, what, what often happens is if you dwell on, on a negative space or a negative state of mind is that it becomes compounded and it, you know, it becomes bigger and bigger. And, and so the quicker you, you interrupt this, this state of mind or, or pattern of thinking, whatever it may be, doesn't necessarily have to be the physical episode, um, the better. And the, the physical activity also helps with, with that, taking a walk and just getting some fresh air, getting some sunshine. There, there, are, there are the breathing exercises as well, because the body does respond um, to certain anxious states of anxiety with, with the heightened you know, rapid breath. And so you've got to bring that back, not bring the breath, the panic breath, as it were, you know, and remind yourself to breathe on the stomach. But you only really need a few practices. These things don't need to be monumental. You don't have to have this long list of things um, to, to break yourself out of funk because then they become a distraction in themselves. I think that's really, it's really very skillful, you know, and, and I think the main practice that you're actually highlighting is the practice of being aware that this, that, that you have moved into a state and that there needs to be an interruption. It's a skill that I've learned through, through therapy and obviously reading that I've done 
on, on my own as well. There are so many people who haven't been exposed to that guidance, you know, to realize that this is this is something you can actually control a little bit with the ownership of. Um, and I've had good help doing that. Could you tell us about a time in your life when um, that experience of wellness, of equilibrium um, was challenged on a daily basis and, and how you navigated that? I'm going to use the example that's, um, that's relevant to so many people at the moment, and that's the one of, of lockdown. It's not so much the, uh, the process of having to isolate oneself that's the problem. Uh, I, I mean, working as a, as a visual artist or working in the arts can be a very solitary um, line of work, and I've said this many times. The issue for me and for many others is, has been the precarity of the whole situation. Not knowing when your income is going to be affected. Lockdown has meant that I'm, I'm not as mobile as I'd like to be, that I can't move around and work. So I've, I've had to move a lot of my work to online work at home and also in meeting with clients because, you know, often I, I think that as a person, I. I'm, I'm more charming in, in a face-to-face -face sort of scenario where I can convince somebody that I'm, I deliver what they need. And so those, those sorts of, of challenges have affected my, my ability to earn an income. And then also we know that because of the realities attached to this, this health pandemic, countries and, you know, large bodies in civil society have moved their funding elsewhere. The priorities are no longer, you know, the arts, although we know that the arts is important, but yeah, the funds that people have available to use my services have also run, run a little bit dry. And so that's a challenge. To add to that, um, I've got an old vehicle that's developed a major problem that's also affected my, my mobility. Um, and then, over the last month or so, the, the Western Cape has developed a, a big issue in relation to taxi violence. So where I tried to pivot and take public transport to get to my studio, I'm not able to do that because my life is at risk. And so these, these things have, have sort of compounded my anxiety a little bit. I, I do consider myself to be a fairly solution-driven person in that I'd, I'd perhaps take, take the day or two to stabilize myself and, and then think about what I could do within my power to, you know, to solve this issue or to, to find a, a way to move forward. And, you know, once one does it, then there's this additional problem that comes in. So one <laughs> is faced with rapidly changing um, realities. What I've done to, to face those challenges is, as I've said, to to change the way that I work. Uh, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to, to be a Swiss army knife of sorts in that I can work in the, the tangible and physical environment, but I can also work in the online environment. Um, and I've also been trying to, to look for clients beyond South African shows, you know, if we are working in this online environment and we use this buzzword, you know, that we're global citizens, perhaps we need to be considering can we do the same sort of thing in other countries, perhaps where the currencies are a bit more powerful? I have maintained my, my habits, the ones that I've spoken about at the beginning of this conversation. 
but it would obviously mean that the magnitude of the challenge, the measure of the anxiety is increased. So I need to match that with how much uh, spiritual and mental maintenance I do. And so those those have taken uh, a foreground for me as well, especially because the, the loss of working time and the loss of income has meant that there's this void that needs to be filled. What do I fill this void with? Do I fill it with more anxiety and panic? Do I watch the news, you know? Um, and constantly feed this monster in my head or constantly feed this pattern of negative thinking? Or, or do I feed myself with things that could help me to maintain the equilibrium I've spoken about? It's tough. It's a big ask because this um, this particular challenge of the pandemic is not going away tomorrow. And um, income is not suddenly going to fall out of the sky because I've decided to be a bit more innovative about it. Um, but I do what I can do with reasonably within my power. Um, and then since I'm a spiritual person, I, I put what I can't control in the hands of that higher power and relinquish that control. Not go and fetch it back every five minutes and say, no, give me that problem back. You know, just give it away and let it stay there. that you've described that you've been able to, to make and are currently making, facing the challenges, but finding solutions. Was that, um, was that something that happened quite easily with, with the lockdown? And how did that play out for you? No, it wasn't a seamless process and it wasn't easy at all. Um, because we are creatures of habit, and so there were certain routines set in place for you know for the way I work, and I've got to adjust. Um, um, even if I decide to adjust, putting those things in place takes, takes time, because you've you've also got to deal with the fallout of that situation not working. As someone who used to be a, a very heavy depression sufferer. I no longer struggle with depression and anxiety as much as I did before, but it's one of those um, it's one of those creatures that that stalks you and it creeps up on you when you least expect it. And so, it just means that um, the period in which I need to to deal with that depression has lessened because I I just have the tools to deal with them. I'm, I'm also not someone who can take medication because I find that it slows me down, it impacts my productivity, um, um, my ability to respond to challenges. It, it numbs me to the point where I can't really function the way I want to. I feel like it diminishes my personality. So I've made a conscious decision not to focus on medication as a coping mechanism, which means that my my process or my habits that I have in place to deal with, with with those challenges have to be tight. They have to be, you know, they have to be really efficient. I have an analogy that I use to explain um, managing the depression to people, and it's similar to the grieving process. Um, like when you lose uh, someone that you love um, or someone who's, who's important in your life, 
there needs to be a space for grieving. Pain is pain is part of this existence. Um, suffering is part of this existence. And so one one needs to make room in your life for your body's physical responses and mental responses. Because if you delay them, they are going to manifest at some time in your life. For me, for instance, this pandemic was, uh, I, I had to acknowledge the loss of income. I had to acknowledge that I wasn't going to be able to, to act as effectively as I wanted to, you know, as innovative as I thought I was. Um, I needed to acknowledge that the events that are occurring are not of my doing and that they don't just affect me because what happens in, in a state of depression is often that it's quite a selfish state that you think that you are the only person who's experiencing this, this particular type of trauma or pain. Um, and so with the pandemic, I realized, but you know, I'm not the only person who's experiencing this loss of income. It is not because I'm less of a person or because I've, I've been particularly, you know, lax. This is a global situation that is affecting everybody. And so that, that realization and that period of allowing myself to, to grieve, as it were, helps me to put things into perspective. And so I, I do take the days where I, I don't work, where my body doesn't allow me to. And I, I do take two or three days and just allow my body to be absolutely drained. But then, you know, allocate allocate its space as well. And and once once I'm done with that, and then I try to, to revert to my, my regular self. Because the, I don't see depression as being my regular self. I see it as an exaggerated state of, of pain and suffering that's, that is completely narrow-minded and blinkered. There are, there are types of trauma that take much, much longer to, to work through as well and for, um, for us to develop appropriate tools, management tools, but it, it is possible. I've had years in which to develop a set of practices that, that work for me. And um, it, it does also require um, for us to be open not just with ourselves, but open to somebody. And it might be somebody neutral, like a mental health practitioner. And these, these are not tools that we are innately built with as, as human beings. And so many of us grew up in environments where we weren't taught that sort of resilience. And, and it helps to speak to somebody who is completely neutral, not to give us the tools, but to show us, you know, this is, this is what's available to you. And this is what you could do. Even support groups have their, their place through continual exposure to people who, who have that awareness of their problems. They could perhaps present that one practice that they've embedded in their lives that, are, that has you know, become a game changer for them. And even just the, the empathy of, of an understanding set of people in, in that sort of setting. It allows you to understand that you're not as isolated as this mental state makes you think you are. You know? um, that the same types of struggles are being experienced by others and they are managing it. And some are even you know, over overcoming them. As, as a person of color, I know that there are particular taboos in our society about you know, being plagued by a mental health issue. 
And so while you do need to speak to people, you need to find your particular safe space, um, a, a space of non-judgment where you can speak to people about these things. For me, it was a process of finding and establishing a space of trust with certain people with whom I could discuss it. And that then becomes an, a healthy outlet. How does wellness as a concept, um, practice, and experience, how does this connect with your work as an artist? My work as an artist is connected with my well-being from, from my childhood. Um, it was a space for me to, to find peace. Um, it's, it's a space where I'm allowed to, to process my, my thoughts. I'm, I'm someone who spends a lot of time in my head. That's not always to my benefit, but it's, it's who I am. And so, um, yeah, making art is, is spaces where one is almost in that, that state of autopilot and, and um, I find those spaces to be beneficial to processing um, my thoughts and my feelings about the world. So one also needs to make those decisions about um, which work you are doing for yourself and which work you are more explicitly doing to earn an income, although they all form part of your practice. There's work that I make that I realize is not going to sell very quickly, um, particularly the, the objects that I make. And so I've, I haven't burdened those works or that side of, of my practice with, with those expectations. I, I treat them as my vehicle to say the things I want to say and, and, to, and it's work that I make for myself, you know, been through to myself. But then I also know that there's aspects of my practice. I know that the youth work would be useful to certain organizations like museums, so that I can do for money. Um, the website work as well, I know is useful to certain organizations. And I teach, um, teaching one can do for money. Research, you know, as a research assistant, one can do for money. They are all still within the arts and they still form part of the practice. But I don't attach as much of my, my sense of self to that work. I used to work in the banking industry and I keep on reminding myself that I didn't attach my sense of self-worth every spreadsheet I was doing, I didn't attach my sense of well-being to um, the online application of Mr. and Mrs. Pete Pompey's, you know, so why do I need to do that to all of the work in my art practice? It's also been a vehicle for me to, um, to encourage wellness with others. So I, I work, well, I used to work before lockdown quite extensively with young people. And so I... I used art as a way to show them where they can express themselves, you know, in difficult emotions and difficult ideas with this particular vehicle. As a young person, sometimes those emotions are unfiltered and they could give rise, you know, to, to outbursts, they could give rise to actions that aren't necessarily helpful. And so I I've been using art as a way to show young people that you can use this right? if you're experiencing that frustration or if you want to talk about something that, that's affecting you but you don't want to, you don't just want to have a conversation about it, have a conversation through your art. And I've seen the difference it can make in, in young people's lives and in, in their wellness. 
And and that for me is is also sometimes a management technique of my own wellness in that I'm not as absorbed in my own struggles and sufferings, but trying to show you know young people how they can manage this. You know, as someone who's a little bit older, who's, who's been where they have been, you know, showing them, you know, this is one of the tools that you can use. I was also there. This is what I did. Maybe that works for you. So they don't all necessarily need to be um, practicing artists afterwards, but even if they use art as a tool, expression as one of their own habits, okay? um, that, that's, that's beneficial to me. Do you have anything that you'd like to add that, that didn't come up that you'd like to be included in this conversation? I know that this that there's going to be an audience that listens to this podcast. Um, and as someone who had a particularly rough phase with my mental health between 2010 and 2012, um, I'd, I'd like to appeal to whoever has an as an issue to, to speak to somebody as quickly as possible. You, you want to try and nip the issue in the bud before it spirals out of control. And the onus really is on you. Nobody, nobody is coming for you. Um, you need to take that ownership on yourself to get help in whatever shape or form that might be, even if it's your imam, if it's your pastor, if it's your elder, if it's an uncle or auntie whom you trust, speak to somebody as early as possible so that your, your, your mental health issue doesn't become um, a huge burden that you're carrying on your back for many years of your life.